0: The Deeper Secrets of Human Evolution in the Light of the Gospels Translated by Christiana Bryan This is Lecture 5, given in Berlin on the 23rd of November, 1909 Entitled, Preparing for an Understanding of the Christ Event The Mission of the Ancient Hebrew People By way of contributing to our studies of the St. Matthew Gospel we touched on the mission of the ancient Hebrew people and the emergence of Christ Jesus from this people. Our observations in this connection were intended gradually to create some clarity as to how the various spiritual streams flowed together to collectively vouchsafe the great spiritual stream of Christianity for the onward progress of the earth. The part that fell to the ancient Hebrew people in the evolution of all humanity could only be shown in brief outline last time. One cannot understand the Gospel of Matthew without going at least some way into the other elements of this people. So that we understand each other quite clearly, we need to bring to the forefront of our souls of what this mission consists. We saw how this differed from the mission of other pre-Christian peoples, which were still associated with what we can call the results of humanity's clairvoyance, which could be found among all peoples of antiquity. This is something one can also call ancient wisdom. Similarly, and characterizing it sketchily, we can say that in ancient Atlantis all human beings could see into the spiritual world. Though only the initiated had the most advanced experience of this, Most people were, to at least some extent, familiar with it, because in certain intermediate states, the Atlantean human being had clairvoyant experience of some spiritual realms. This faculty was to be replaced with what we now know as the predominant state, namely activated reasoning, a grasp of the outer world with our physical senses, in short, life in the outer world. This was developing slowly and gradually throughout pre-Christian ages, such that, we can say, the ancient Indian people still possessed considerable remains of ancient clairvoyance. What the Holy rishis taught was inherited from even more ancient wisdom. Even in the second post-Atlantean cultural epoch in Persia, what the pupils and followers of Zarathustra knew was based on wisdom handed down from Atlantis. Ancient Chaldean astronomy is imbued with this primal wisdom, as is the wisdom of the Egyptians. The sort of science based upon post Atlantean scientific faculties would have been totally incomprehensible to the ancient Egyptian or Chaldean mind. Science, which expresses itself in concepts and ideation of a physical nature, did not yet exist. The sort of reflection, of which we are capable, did not exist. It is in no way gratuitous to make clear to oneself the difference between a genuine seer of our times and, for instance, one of Chaldea or ancient Egypt. For someone who attains true seership on the basis of conditions pertaining to day, it is as follows. They receive what we can call the revelations of the spiritual world the intuitions, experiences and knowledge from out of spiritual realms and they must imbue these revelations on the basis of all they have gained from earthly thinking with a logical, sensible mode of thought acquired in everyday life. The experiences of a modern seer cannot be grasped in their totality unless they are received into a soul thoroughly schooled in logical and sensible thinking modern revelations and intuitive knowledge remain unintelligible demanding the approach of a soul rigorously trained in logical thinking whoever has such revelations without first mustering the requisite will to train their earthly faculties with rational stringency will only achieve the sort of visionary clairvoyance that remains incomprehensible and hence susceptible to error. Today, only souls possessing genuine, intensive willpower to school themselves in rational mode are able to receive in fitting manner the revelations and knowledge accessible through seership today. This is why in a spiritual movement such as ours, the greatest possible importance must be attached precisely to not developing clairvoyance one-sidedly and thereby allowing one-sided impressions to be received, but that toward such revelation each soul must generate an element. A great deal of logical schooling work has to be undertaken in the furtherance of intentional clairvoyance. The two cannot be separated in our time. This was quite different the Egyptian or Chaldean seer. They received their inspiration, albeit via different means, in tandem with their inherent logical laws. They, therefore, needed no particular logic of their own. Once they had undergone spiritual training, these inspirations would contain ready-formed laws. Today's physical organism is no longer capable of that having evolved beyond this stage in the course of humanity's onward trajectory. Bearing this difference in mind, we can then understand what is meant when we say that remnants of ancient clairvoyance were widespread among pre-Christian peoples. With the single exception of the ancient Hebrews, chosen as they were to create a human organism suited to comprehending the outer physical world in terms of measure, number, and so on, and by these means gradually to ascend to the spiritual knowledge contained within the image of Yahweh or Jehovah. This was the crux, that in Abraham a human being was chosen whose brain was a fitting precursor for an entire people who could then inherit this feature from him. No longer would the inspirations be received as if rising up inwardly, but rather as a gift originating externally. They received all that stemmed from Abraham, not from within, but as a revelation from without. Here something very important is indicated in differentiating this people's developmental situation from those of all the other peoples of antiquity. The difference is radical. You may well think that the old faculties, those previously inherited capacities, might not be lost all at once, but that remnants of it might linger in this people. This is the case with Joseph, who retained something of older faculties in common with other nations, enabling him to be the link between Hebrews and Egyptians, who remained immersed in the spiritual stream of pre-Christian humanity. New faculties could only develop gradually. Why was a people prepared in such a way? Why were they chosen, endowed with specialized capacities, and detached from the rest of pre-Christian evolution? This had to happen in order to prepare humanity for that great impending moment when Christ Jesus was to descend to earth. This was a time when all ancient clairvoyance and blood-relatedness forfeited its significance in face of something completely new that appeared among humanity, full use of the I or ego. Through this radical intermixing of bloodlines, much was lost of what had previously been so significant, but in its place full use of the human eye was heralded. In this way, the true kingdom of humanity, or the kingdom of heaven, could be added to all other kingdoms. In general, human beings are not readily inclined to embrace what is new and to recognize it as such. They do not accept events taking place on a spiritual plane without further ado. There was always talk of some prophet or other appearing in future, and this was as prevalent in pre-Christian as in more recent times. In the twelfth and thirteenth century, there was a veritable addiction to prophecy. People emerged here and there, prophesying the imminent reappearance of Christ, foretelling where this would take place. At other times, isolated incidents of this would crop up. There was discussion of this, or that person being the incarnation of a new Christ. Obviously, we need waste no words on these prophecies, because even if they gained some contemporary traction, they lack substance. Such prophecies always contained their own downfall, in that they would speak of what was to come, but failed to prepare humanity to recognize what was being foretold. They did not sufficiently pre-configure human feelings, such that they would have understood the imminent event. For people hearing those prophecies, it must have been similar to the grammar school teacher mentioned by Hebel in his diaries who punished a pupil because he could not understand Plato. Hebel then adds humorously that this pupil was the reincarnated Plato. This is exactly what happens to people who continuously predict a reincarnation of Christ. They would be quite unprepared for the substance of any such event, even if it were to transpire, and would hold Christ to be something other than Christ himself. This is now to be prevented in advance. One needs to know the following to understand St. Matthew's Gospel, so that there are at least some people who understand the Christ event, which is, to characterize it from one perspective, that it was Christ who brought to humanity the possibility henceforth not only to receive physical impressions externally, but also to receive spirit from the external world. Individual human beings were to be prepared, and this is what in fact took place in Hebrew antiquity, that a few individuals were prepared in a certain way for acquiring an understanding of the Christ event. These people, they were few among the ancient Hebrews, need to be looked at more closely if one wants to understand how preparations for the coming of Christ were cultivated, how those characteristics inherited down the ages from Abraham were rendered adept at comprehending prophetically how the human eye was to be introduced by the Redeemer. Those conditioned to see and understand clairvoyantly what had been prepared in the ancient Hebrews and what Christ in reality signified, were known as Na- Nazarites. They could perceive and vision all that had been developing among their ancient Hebrew forefathers to enable Christ's birth among them, and hence how Christ could be understood. These Nazarites were, in terms of their way of life and their inner configuration, as dictated by their clairvoyant development, bound by strict regulation which, because they belonged in a completely different time, differed substantially from the rules whereby one attains to spiritual knowledge today. Yet they nevertheless possessed some similarity with them. Some aspects of Nazarite life were important then, but are of secondary importance today, and other aspects would be essential nowadays that were tangential then. For this reason, nobody should believe that what previously led to visionary knowledge of Christ would today, in like manner, lead to any such far-reaching and essential understanding. A prime requirement of a Nazarite was total abstinence from alcohol, and eating anything prepared with vinegar was frowned upon. For those even more strictly adhering to the rules, it was further essential to avoid everything originating in the vine because it was held that in vines the plant-forming principle had overreached a certain point, the point past which more than sun forces are at work. Sun forces affect the vines, but other forces also ripen within it. What develops when the ripening continues into autumn under a sun waning in strength? Drinks of grape origin were only for those who did not want to follow the path to higher clairvoyance. For those who venerated the god Dionysus, while absorbing into themselves forces and capacities that rose up from out of the earth. A Nazarite bound by these laws during their training was further prohibited from contact with anything subject to death and in possession of an astral body, in short, with everything of an animal nature. They had to be strictly vegetarian and this was the reason why many confined themselves to eating only carob, or locust-bean-derived bread, also known as St. John's bread, a food widely used by those aiming to follow Nazarite instruction. They also ate the honey of wild bees, as opposed to domesticated bees, and other nectar-collecting insects. John the Baptist later chose precisely this path, living off locust-bean bread and wild honey. In the Gospels it is said that he ate locusts and wild honey, but this is a mistranslation, because he would hardly have been able to catch locusts in the desert wilderness, something to which I have previously drawn your attention. Another fundamental for Nazarites was not to cut their hair for the duration of their training toward clairvoyance, something intimately connected with the evolution of humanity, and something it is vital to keep in sight when considering humankind's development. Whatever belongs to the essential nature of the human being can only be understood when one seeks it in spiritual realms. However extraordinary it may sound, we retain in our hair a remnant of certain inward-raying forces through which in olden days the forces of the sun shone into human beings. Hair was something full of life that allowed forces of the sun to ray into humans. You see, this expressed, for example, in sculptures of lions from times when humans were still conscious of such deeper aspects, where the sculptor has not merely created a modern lion with an almost poodle-like mane, but a lion of ancient tradition whose mane bushes forth as if replete with and condensed from the sun's rays. People could then reflect that it was entirely possible in ancient times that leaving hair uncut could attract forces into oneself, especially if the hair was strong and freshly healthy. However, by the time of the Nazarites, this reality was seen as barely more than symbolic. Allowing what stood behind the forces of the sun to stream into oneself represented something of real progress in human evolution. This progress from atavistic clairvoyant vision Streaming upward, within, to a way of thinking and conceptualizing about the outer world was associated with the fact that humans gradually became less hair-covered beings. One has to imagine Atlantean and immediately post-Atlantean humans as having luxuriant hair growth, a sign that they were still strongly irradiated with spiritual light. A choice is described in the Bible— between the smooth Jacob and the hirsute Esau. In the latter we see a man descended from Abraham, retaining the last remnants of an earlier stage of development, as expressed in his luxuriant hair. The type of man possessing faculties, supporting greater interaction with the physical world, is represented in the figure of Jacob. He had the gift of cleverness, combined with all the shadier characteristics this entailed, and he consigns Esau to relegation. In this way, an offshoot from the main path of evolution is eliminated in Esau. Esau's line continues as the Edomites, in whom ancient human traits persist. All these things are beautifully expressed in the Bible. Now a consciousness was to arise in humanity that was once again aware of a spiritual life And this was to emerge among the Nazarites, in that they wore their hair long during their schooling. In antiquity, the connection of hair with spirit light was even expressed through the words for light and for hair, being, with small variation, practically identical. The Hebrew language as a whole tends to draw attention to the deepest secrets of humanity and as such should be regarded as a powerful linguistic revelation of wisdom. This is background to the fact that the Nazarites let their hair grow long. Today, however, this need not be seen as a decisive feature. During their training, the Nazarites were guided toward a specific clairvoyant experience, namely, to have an imaginative inkling of the gradual and imminent approach to humanity of Christ the last of the great Nazarites, around the time of Christ, is called John the Baptist. He had not only experienced this anticipatory culmination in himself, but had enabled all those whom he wished to make truly human to experience it likewise. The culminating experience mentioned is none other than the Johannine Baptism. We need to learn to understand it in its evolutionary setting and significance, however. What indeed is this baptism? To what does it lead? Initially, it consists of a person being immersed under water, during the process of which their ether body is loosened from their physical body in the region of the head, whereas normally the two bodies are firmly enmeshed together. You have certainly heard that when people drown, they see a tableau of their entire lives as a consequence of their ether body becoming detached from their physical body. In just this way did the person baptized by John experience their life's tableau with all its idiosyncrasies, which would otherwise have remained forgotten. He would also have seen the condition of humanity in terms of that particular age, how the physical body develops out of the ether body, the latter acting as its sculptor. This etheric element of the human being, which forms their physical body, could only be observed when in the loosened state described. This is what took place during a Johannine baptism. Had a person experienced this baptism 3,000 years before the era of our reckoning, they would have become conscious of the fact that all the best spiritual qualities with which humankind is endowed must indeed be an ancient inheritance, because in those antique times all bounty received from the spiritual world was experienced as the divine bequest it was. This image was imprinted on the ether body and in turn became a formative force on the physical body particularly in those developed in advance of the rest of humanity, baptism would have revealed that all their knowledge rested upon ancient revelation. It was known as beholding etheric soul nature in an image of a snake or serpent. Those who experienced this were known as children of the serpent, having witnessed how Luciferic beings descended into human beings, what formed the physical body, was a creature of the serpent. Now, however, not in a Johannine baptism 3,000 years before John the Baptist, but in his own times, something quite different transpired. Among those baptized, there were already some who demonstrated, by their nature, that human evolution was progressing apace, that the human eye, capital, fructified, as it is, by the outer world, possesses enormous power. Another image emerged, one quite different from that of the Johannine baptisms of yore. The person now saw the creative forces of the ether body no longer in the form of a serpent, but as an image of a lamb. Such ether bodies were no longer imbued from within with what originated in Luciferic forces, but were instead completely surrendered to a spiritual world shining into human souls through manifestations of the outer world. This vision of the Lamb was the central experience of the Johannine baptism for those who understood the real meaning of that baptism. These were the same who could reflect, such human beings are quite different. They have become new beings those few who experienced Johannine baptism in this way could say, a great and mighty event is occurring, human beings are utterly changed, and the human eye has gained sovereignty here on earth. Those whom St. John had baptized were prepared in this way to comprehend the signs of the times, to understand that a momentous event was taking place. This had always been the task of the Nazarites, Through baptism, they achieved a state of knowing how imminently the coming of Christ was approaching. They knew this through the qualitative nature of their ether body, while it was in a loosened state during baptism. John the Baptist was to show that the time had come when the human eye could begin to indwell human nature, and this made him John, the fulfillment of antiquity. He gathered a community around himself to whom he could show how the Christ principle would descend now that humanity was turning to align with their eye. John the Baptist educated these Nazarites in the highest sense so that prophecy became fulfillment, creating a community around him who could comprehend the approaching Christ event. Only in this way can the words of John the Baptist be rightly understood. These words are to be taken in their infinitely profound sense. It really no longer behooves someone who wishes to occupy themselves with these things nowadays still to see John the Baptist as a raging fanatic who merely rebukes the Pharisees, who calls them a brood of vipers and reproves them. Do not presume that in Abraham you have a father. God can bring forth children for Abraham from out of these stones. Close quote. From John the Baptist this would have been carping had he not also been glad when the Pharisees and Sadducees came to him to be baptized. Would he have scolded them on arrival? Why would he have done that? Understanding matters from the inside out. It soon becomes apparent that mere chiding is not behind these harsh words, but a lofty sense and deep significance that can only be grasped if one approaches the ancient Hebrews from a particular perspective. From what has been said, you will already have gained a sense that in Abraham a man has been chosen who possesses the precise traits necessary and among whose descendants Jesus could, at the allotted moment, be born. For this to happen, what were tendencies in Abraham needed to evolve? We need to be quite clear that for them to unfold, something else always had to be excluded. We saw how Joseph was rejected. But this occurred even earlier with such, for example, as Esau, progenitor patriarch of the Edomites, because he retained remnants of an ancient inheritance. Only such traits were to persist as inclined toward the designated direction. This is wonderfully expressed in that Abraham had two sons, Isaac, son of Sarah, on one side, and then Ishmael. The ancient Hebrew people stem from Isaac, but Abraham had other characteristics as well. Had these persisted through the generations, a rightful inheritance would not have come about. This other heredity had to be radically cast aside, deflected in another direction, namely in that of Ishmael, son of the Egyptian maid Hagar. Two lines of heredity, therefore, descend from Abraham, one via Isaac and the other via the banished Ishmael, who, bearing the blood of an Egyptian woman, had to take on characteristics unsuited to the mission of the Hebrew people. Now, something extraordinary happened. The Hebrew people were to generate what was rightful through heredity, and claim their ancient inheritance of wisdom from without. They had to go to Egypt to absorb qualities available there. Moses was able to transmit this to his people because he was an Egyptian initiate. He could not have done this had this wisdom remained in Egyptian form. It would be wrong to imagine that ancient Egyptian wisdom could simply be dropped into all that flowed down from Abraham. This would not have been compatible with Hebrew culture, and would have resulted in cultural deformity. Moses brought quite distinctive qualities to his Egyptian initiation, and could therefore not extract from it wisdom easily transferable to the Israelites. He only later gave them guidance, indeed only once outside Egypt, on the basis of revelations he received in Sinai. What then? is this revelation in Sinai? What did Moses receive there? And what could he impart to his people? He bestowed on them something that could indeed be grafted unto the stem of his people because it was uniquely related to them. Once Ishmael's descendants had migrated to the very region through which Moses and his people were wandering. The characteristics garnered via Hagar, were passed on to the Ishmaelites. Though distantly related to Abraham, they had retained far older traits, and these were now found by Moses among these Ishmaelites, who had initiates of a kind in their midst. Through the revelations of this tribal branch, he could make the Sinai revelations comprehensible to the Israelites. This is why an ancient Hebrew legend tells of an offshoot of Abraham's line by the name of Ishmael being banished into Araba, namely into the desert, what flourished within this Ishmaelian offshoot was also preserved in the legacy of Moses. The ancient Hebrew people, therefore reaccepted in the form of teachings the legacy of Moses' revelations in Sinai, what had been excluded from their bloodline. They accepted this back from an external source. Here again we see the wonderful mission of the ancient Hebrew people, in that everything was to be given them such that it was later received back in the form of a gift. It was an external gift that Abraham received in Isaac, the entire Hebrew people. Similarly, Moses and his people received back through the descendants of Ishmael, that which they had earlier banished. In exile, Ishmael was only to evolve his own unique constitution and in return to accept from his God what had been expelled. In this way, Jacob was later reconciled with Esau, through which act the Hebrews could receive back qualities once discarded in Esau. One needs to read the Bible very carefully, if one is really to do justice to the enormous import of the words it contains. Instances such as these course as a characteristic trait throughout Hebrew history. The descendants of Hagar provide features connected with the commandments of Moses, whereas the bloodline representing Moses' salient features flows from Sarah. Agar, or Hagar, translates in Hebrew, to Sinai, meaning a stone mountain, a mountain of stones, great stones, megaliths. One could also say that great stones or stone tablets are an outer emblem or corollary of Hagar, in which form Moses received his commandments, the revelation of his laws. The commandments for the Jewish people originate therefore not in the finest qualities of Abraham, but from Hagar, from Sinai. In this way the danger was averted, that those who merely adhered to the commandments, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, would remain static in their development. These are the ones who, when baptized by John the Baptist, went to see a serpent instead of a lamb. What would otherwise be carping by John the Baptist is transformed into a beautiful parable, When he calls to the Pharisees and Sadducees, You, who are followers of the serpent, beware that you see rightly during your baptism. In other words, seeing the serpent instead of the lamb. Further, he warns them not to become arrogant on the grounds that Abraham is their father, because these are only words in their case. They have sworn on what originated in the stones, the tablets of Sinai. But this has ceased to be of prime significance. Quote, now an I is approaching from out of the cosmos, to come into the world as a newborn I, and this I is what I proclaim to you. I show you how what is to develop out of jewelry, what has truly been handed down through the generations, no longer bears witness in the form of single tablets of stone from Sinai, but upon all that surrounds us. Children of God may appear through this so that the spiritual, behind the sense perceptible, will become visible. From these stones God's word will raise children for Abraham. You do not understand the words, Abraham is our father. Close quote. Only now, after what has been said here, do these words acquire their full meaning for us. Something of this nature does not only need to be read in the Akashic Chronicle, but can be found in the Bible. Compare what St. Paul says in his epistle to the Galatians. What has just been said above is also confirmed by Paul the Apostle. He also states that Hagar or Agar is the same word as Sinai, and that a testament was given in Sinai, beyond which people, on the basis of all that is entailed in descending from Abraham through the ages, are to grow toward comprehending what has entered the world through Christ. Attention is simultaneously drawn to words that one will have to understand in future. It is such a pity in an age when intelligence is seemingly so advanced that so little reflection is devoted to the words of atonement, Repent ye, they could be translated as, actively transform your senses within yourselves. In the most varied places it is said that John baptized with water in the name of repentance, of atonement, in other words, for the changing or transforming of the senses. When those baptized emerged from the water, they were to change the sense in which they looked, not back to past traditions, but ahead to all that the liberated eye, bestowed through Christ Jesus, contained. Their minds were to be led from the old gods of yore in the direction of new spiritual beings, new gods. This is the sense in which the aim of Johannine baptism was to reorient and transform human senses. John baptized with water in order to call forth in a few individuals the power to understand that the kingdom of heaven was nearing to enable them to recognize who Christ Jesus was. With this, something has been added to what we have learned about the mission of the ancient Hebrew people all this will also gradually lead to a better understanding of Christ. It is quite wonderful how this mission is constituted. We saw how what was predisposed in Abraham could evolve through generations. For this, some elements had to be excluded, and those suited to their task further evolved through lines of heredity and capacity. Such capacities could only be acquired externally. And what the people of Abraham could develop and were chosen so to do was concentrated in one being, in Jesus. The Jewish people needed something on to which they could hold by way of a teaching or tenet. This always approached them from the outside and originated in an aspect of themselves that had earlier been ejected by themselves. Qualities transferred to Ishmael could no longer remain in their blood but could only rightfully remain in their insight or knowledge. And so was received back in the form of the Mosaic Laws of Sinai. These laws had fulfilled their purpose once the time had come when the teachings given via the stones, the tablets, were no longer needed, but were to be replaced by the contents of the entire approaching world of humanity. In this way, The time was being prepared for, in which, by way of stone tablets, those people, the sons of God, could arise, and beyond all stones, yes, beyond the entire earth, the spiritual world would be opened. All these pictures are just fragments, contributing to an understanding of the mission of the ancient Hebrew people. Only when this mission is fully understood can one comprehend the towering figure of Christ Jesus as he is portrayed In the Gospel of St. Matthew The End of Lecture 5